Hey, it's Curious City editor Alexandra Solomon. When the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution went into effect in January 1920, it prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating spirits. But just because prohibition started, Americans didn't stop drinking. Many simply changed where they did it. At Curious City, we get a lot of questions about how and where people did their drinking in Chicago during Prohibition. And today, we're going to look at some of the more unlikely spots. To guide us through, I'm joined by historian and educator Paul Derica. He's the director of exhibitions at the Newberry Library, and he's actually going to be helping us out here at Curious City to uncover some of Chicago's deepest and weirdest history more often. Hey, Paul, welcome, and thanks for unlocking the archives for us. Thank you. I'm very excited to be uh, taking a deep dive into the archives and exploring Chicago's past with Curious City. Yeah, me too. There's so many interesting things buried at the Newberry. So, okay, I'm wondering whether you have a favorite spot for drinking here in Chicago. And I'm particularly like a place that might have been around, you know, during Prohibition and is still around today. <laughs> well, I, I probably have a, some favorite spots and I might, mm. you know, get in tr- a little trouble for this. But I'll, I'll just name two. One is near where I live, and that's the Skylark, the corner of Cermak and Halstead. Skylark opened in, in 1908 as a tide house connected to the Burke Brothers Brewery. And it's been a bar more or less throughout most of its existence, but something must have been going on. Uh, during the Prohibition era there. And then another beloved place is on the north side, and that's the appropriately named The Hideout, which has been hiding out in one form or another since the end of the 19th century. Yeah, those are both really great places. We've done a few Curiosity events at The Hideout. So uh, cool, cool spots. All right, you've got some kind of surprising stories about where people did their drinking. Tell us a little bit about what you've got for us today. That's right. So we're going to start by looking at a particular Chicago institution, the Beer Flat, which might have been the kind of place that your grandmother or your great-grandmother might have run. Then we're going to look at what was then a private club, but today is a hotel where perhaps you've spent a night and maybe even had a drink. And then lastly, we're going to look at the history of a beloved Chicago restaurant that sadly exists no longer, but the building is still there. And appropriately enough, you can get a beer there today. Okay, well, I'm super intrigued. That is all coming up next. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Not long after our nation's founding, there was a movement to regulate or even ban alcohol. It was seen as destructive to our moral fiber and blamed for everything from crime to poverty. Leading up to Prohibition, more and more Americans were drawn to these moral arguments against the consumption of alcohol. So as the clock struck midnight on December 31st, 1919, champagne bottles weren't just popping to ring in a new year and the onset of the Roaring Twenties. No, for many, they were popping as folks celebrated what might be their last legal drops of alcohol ever. No sooner had Prohibition gone into effect than an underground network of makers and suppliers of intoxicating spirits emerged to satisfy thirsty Americans. 
including those in Chicago. Some of those suppliers may have been our own grandparents and great-grandparents. Some of the places where they drank may have been what today we call home. When Chicagoans think about the Prohibition era, we might imagine some of our forebears imbibing in chic underground cabarets where martini glasses clinked and jazz bands roared. But it's more likely they were sitting in the kitchen of women like Fanny Latkin, sipping on homemade moonshine and beer. Fanny and her five orphan grandchildren lived in a two-story graystone on Kedzie Avenue in Chicago's North Lawndale neighborhood, not far from Douglas Park. The building, which had a small grocery on the first floor, is still there. Fanny operated what was known as a beer flat. A beer flat was really just someone's house or apartment or an office where illegal beer and spirits were sold, usually produced right there on site. All kinds of Chicagoans drink at beer flats, and sometimes social norms were thrown out the door. Well, some of them at least. For instance, men and women would drink together. Sometimes black and white people would drink together. Most of Fanny's customers were local. Her beer flat basically assumed the place of the neighborhood watering hole. And we know Fanny's story from her arrest. As the Chicago Daily Tribune put it in August 1929, quote, Mrs. Latkin was arrested yesterday morning on evidence that she had sold a pint of alcohol to two Negro prohibition agents sent to her home to make a buy, end quote. Now, at this time, North Lawndale was a working-class neighborhood, home of Western Electric, among other companies, and a large number of Eastern European Jews lived there. The Tribune says the agents discovered, quote, 14 gallons of moonshine and 70 bottles of homemade beer when they raided her apartment turned beer flat. As Fanny stated during her arraignment, she'd recently undergone a series of operations that left her in poor health and deep in debt. And she was the sole support for her grandchildren, making intoxicating spirits was something she could do to sustain herself and her family. While beer flats were small operations that often catered to the neighborhood, they weren't free of danger. Stick-up men who knew the robberies wouldn't be reported and corrupt cops paid off in booze and cash for their silence preyed on women like Fanny. We don't know what happened to Fanny after her arrest, but as the political winds began to shift and local lawmakers believed the repeal of prohibition was near, Chicago's mayor, Anton Cermak, decided to crack down on beer flats. 44 people were arraigned after a raid on 33 beer flats in a single night in May of 1932, according to the Tribune. The city claimed they were looking out for public safety, but they also didn't want to lose potential revenue they could make through taxes and issuing tavern licenses again once prohibition was repealed. And that meant putting women like the Fanny Latkins of this world out of business. While beer flats could be found in every corner of the city, serving every kind of patron, they aren't the only places still standing today where our predecessors ignored the law and drank freely. There was a more exclusive kind of establishment. Members-only clubs like the Chicago Athletic Association, where one could run, swim, and shoot, and then retire to a private room to rest and perhaps enjoy a drink. Drinking had always played an important part in social interactions and deal-making at the Chicago Athletic Association. This club for the rich and famous attracted members like powerful retail moguls, the president of the Art Institute, and even a future Chicago mayor. 
As national prohibition neared, the Chicago Athletic Association began to stockpile intoxicating spirits. You see, according to the law, as long as their members drank alcohol that had been hoarded at the club prior to prohibition went into effect, the members were in the clear. But the Chicago Athletic Association barely made it through the first year before members began breaking the law instead of skirting it. This became evident in late spring 1921, when a husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. James W. Walsh, were apprehended in Detroit near the Canadian border. The Walshes had been smuggling whiskey from our northern neighbor to sell to wealthy clients in Chicago. The Tribune dubbed their illegal operation, quote, the deluxe liquor ring. When investigators got wind of the ring, they subpoenaed the manager of the Chicago Athletic Association, who was asked to turn over all records of guests covering the previous year up to the present. But federal agents weren't satisfied with this. So they raided the club in September of 1921, discovering what they called, quote, a private saloon in room 1201. It was stocked with whiskey supplied by the Walshes. About 20 members of the Chicago Athletic Association were caught up in the booze ring scandal, including men like the famous journalist and author George Ade. Ade had achieved national fame with his newspaper column, Fables and Slang, and would later author The Old Time Saloon. Not wet, not dry, just history. In other words, he was no stranger to drinking, but vehemently denied having purchased four cases of whiskey from the Walshes. The Tribune expressed disappointment in Ade, not for having bought the whiskey, but for having apparently overpaid for it. In the end, only the Walshes and none of their clients would face justice. Today, the Chicago Athletic Association is a hotel in downtown Chicago where anyone over 21 can enjoy a drink. But if you want a taste of that prohibition experience, don't go to room 1201. You'll probably just encounter a confused hotel guest there. There is, however, a spot that has the look and feel of a speakeasy, the Milk Room, a bar that serves cocktails and vintage spirits. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. In the late 1920s, a proprietor by the name of Barney Kessel owned a small restaurant in the Maxwell Street area near Halstead on Chicago's near west side. Put yourself there on Halloween, 1928, in the middle of the lunch hour. Three armed men burst into the dining room of Barney's restaurant, determined to rob the place. But unknown to them, in a back room, sits Police Lieutenant John M. Kelly, enjoying his midday meal and chatting with Barney. Hearing, stick him up, coming from up front, Kelly gets up quietly, cautions Barney to stay still, and goes to investigate. He pulls out his pistol and fires at the robber closest to the till. The man wheels around. Kelly fires again, killing him. The other two robbers flee empty-handed. Lieutenant Kelly receives a $100 prize from the Chicago Daily Tribune for disrupting the crime. At the time, the newspaper was giving monthly rewards to police officers who took an active hand in the, quote, war on crime. What no reporter ever seemed to ask is why Lieutenant Kelly was eating his lunch in the back room rather than in the dining room. And more importantly, 
Why was this small restaurant in a not particularly wealthy part of town targeted by the robbers? As it turns out, Barney was serving more than steaks. He wasn't running a beer flat, like Fanny Latkin, or a speakeasy per se. It was just a neighborhood restaurant where, if you were friendly with the owner, like Police Lieutenant Kelly, you might be able to purchase some intoxicating spirits. And Barney's sideline and bootlegging brought in just enough extra income to make his restaurant an appealing target for the robbers. But within two weeks of the attempted robbery, Barney would find himself on the wrong side of the law, sent to the Ogle County Jail about 100 miles west of Chicago to serve a 60-day sentence for violating prohibition laws. His story could have ended there. He was no Al Capone, after all, except that he managed to charm his jailer, Ogle County Sheriff Sam Good, who, despite his name, seems to have been rather bad at his job. Not only did he release Barney a day earlier than the sentence called for, the sheriff left Barney out of jail some 40 times over the course of the 59 days. Barney got his hair cut, went shopping, took a quick trip back to Chicago to check in on the restaurant, and spent part of the time chauffeuring around the sheriff's daughter, who also happened to be an Ogle County deputy. When the truth of Barney's time in the pokey came out, Sheriff Good quickly claimed that 40 times was an exaggeration. He claimed he let Barney out a mere 20 times. Barney got locked up again for an additional six months, this time without any field trips. Years later, Barney would move his establishment, Barney's Market Club, to the corner of Halstead and Randolph in Chicago's West Loop. What today is the Haymarket Pub and Brewery, a fine place to get illegal, locally made beer. But for more than half a century, the building housed Barney's Market Club, the steakhouse beloved by priests, police, and politicians. So many elected officials purportedly dined there that Barney couldn't keep track of who held what title. So he just started calling them all by the same one, giving the restaurant its catchphrase, Yes, sir, Senator. The quality steaks, catchphrase, the colorful interior, and the outsized gregarious personality of the proprietor made Barney's Market Club a Chicago institution. Despite all this, during World War II, while running his club, rubbing shoulder to shoulder with everyone from politicians to priests, Barney was charged once again in dealing with black market goods. But this time, it was steak. He had knowingly exceeded his wartime meat ration. Due to his age and weight, Barney didn't go to prison this time around, but instead was fined $1,000. During Prohibition, while gangsters like Al Capone and Bugs Moran might have grabbed the headlines, it was the Fanny Latkins and Barney Kessels of the world who were more likely to be brought before the law, fined, and sometimes jailed. I say to you now that from this date on, the 18th Amendment is doomed. By the end of 1933, the 18th Amendment had been repealed in its entirety. Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again. Let us sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. Thanks to Paul Dorica for that reporting and for unlocking the archives at the Newberry Library. Oh, and by the way, if you're wondering whether your house or apartment might once have been one of those beer flats like the one Fanny Latkin ran, 
Well, you could look up old court documents or police reports, or you could stop by the Newberry Library and get Paul to help you. The Newberry has lots of resources to help people figure out the history of their homes and businesses, and the library is free and open to the public. So check it out. This story is part of a collaboration between Curious City and the Newberry Library. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. It's produced by Joe Dassault and edited by me, Alexandra Solomon. Monica Ang is our reporter. Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer. And Sophia Lowe is our intern. Thanks for listening. All together and shout it now. There's no one who can doubt it now. So let's tell the world about it now. Happy days are Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.